Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by $2 Radio, publisher of Damascus, the new novel by Joshua Moore, author of Termite Parade, and some things that meant the world to me. $2 Radio, one of the finest independent presses in the country. Check them out at $2Radio.com. The San Francisco Chronicle, raving about Damascus, says, quote, At once gripping, lucid, and fierce, Damascus is the mature effort of an artist devoted to personal growth and as such contains the glints of real gold. The Wall Street Journal says, Damascus succeeds in conveying a big-hearted vision, and Library Journal says, the novel has real impact. That's Damascus by Joshua Moore, available now from $2 Radio. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. Welcome back to the program. My name is Brad Listy. It's good to have you here. Thank you very much for tuning in. Before I begin, I want to uh, let you in on a big secret. It's the Nervous Breakdown Book Club Holiday Six Pack. It's an insane holiday deal that is uh, being offered by the TNB Book Club, the official book club of the Nervous Breakdown. If you sign up now, if you get it for yourself or you get it for a friend, you get a six pack of books in December for nine ninety nine. Six books for less than 10 bucks, and then a book a month thereafter delivered to your door for just $9.99 a month. That's less than the cost of a movie ticket per month. To get it, just go to the Nervous Breakdown, click on Book Club in the menu bar, and sign up. It's easy. It is a uh, holiday extravaganza. So uh, first things first, I, I got a letter, an interesting letter this week, an email from a listener. His name is Myron, and he writes to me, Hey Brad, here's a story that you may or may not find funny. I work for a heating and cooling company. My boss is dumber than a box of rocks. The other day he went out to meet with a man and give him a price quote. He went to the man's house and just walked in. Upon entering, he met what he thought was the man he was going to see. My boss introduced himself to the man. The man never replied. My boss introduced himself again to the man. No reply. 
My boss introduced himself a third time, all the while noticing that every time he spoke to the man, the man's mouth moved, but no sound came out. He finally got so angry that he decided to punch the man in the face, and when he swung, he punched a mirror. He had been talking to himself the entire time. Apparently, he doesn't know what he looks like. The only reason the rest of us at the shop knew about it is because I had to go to the man's house and figure out what mirror he had so I could go out and buy him a new one. This is just one of many things my boss has done. True story. Anyways, keep up the good work. Myron. So I'm not really sure what to say to that, Myron. I'm trying to imagine it on the level of execution. A man standing in front of a mirror and not realizing it, talking at it. And then, uh, you know, I guess I'm thinking that he must have been fairly close to the mirror. And I'm also imagining that he must have bad eyesight, but, you know, good enough eyesight to be able to discern that his mouth was moving in his reflection. Uh, it's, it's a confusing scenario. And, uh, you know, speaking of confusing, today's show, it deals with religion. I'm talking with Janet Reitman. She's a contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine, uh, a great investigative reporter, She's been to Iraq. Uh, she was there at the height of the war. She's reported on Haiti. She's been to places like Sudan and Sierra Leone and Zimbabwe, all kinds of interesting stuff. And uh, she's written a book called Inside Scientology, the story of America's most secretive religion. It's based on a story she wrote for Rolling Stone that was nominated for a national magazine award. So we talk about Scientology. We talk about religion in general. And I guess I feel like I should try to say something about religion here at the outset, like my experience of it. And, you know, it's hard to talk about. Religion is, is hard to talk about it. What do, you, what do you say about it? What do you say about faith? Um, I'm a Catholic by birth. I don't practice. I don't believe the dogma. I got to be honest. I never really did. I only went to church because I had to as a kid. And then when I was a teenager, I stopped. It's really that simple. And I think I can sum up. Uh, my disconnect from it by paraphrasing uh, George Carlin. And I remember hearing this bit from him as a kid and, and being comforted by it, where he says, basically, there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do. And he has a list of things that he doesn't want you to do. And if you do any of them, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture. And he's going to send you there to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever until the end of time. But he loves you. He loves you. And, you know, I basically heard that, and I was like, exactly. That's it. I'm done. I get it. A, I don't want to be around this guy if he actually does exist uh, because he's a psycho. And B, more importantly, where's the evidence? No one is presenting anything close to compelling evidence that this stuff is true. Uh, the Bible? It's crazy. I mean, it's not all crazy, but you just look at one verse, like a verse in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Quote, if a man discovers on his wedding night that his bride is not a virgin, he must stone her to death on her father's doorstep. End quote. You know, there are a million examples like this. But if you ask me, people who are, you know, sort of fundamentalist about the Bible and believe that it's word for word true, I think they're missing an opportunity. Because when you insist that your holy texts are the actual word of God, you know, you're making such a, it's just a, it's a logical mistake. You know, what you should be arguing is that the Bible is the greatest publishing success story in history. You have the greatest bestseller ever. Greatest story ever told. That's it. Who can argue with that? And, and I mean, can't people be satisfied with that? 
it strikes me as hubristic. You know, not only is it the greatest bestseller ever, in addition, it also has to be the word of God. I don't know. So I don't believe it. I'm not a believer. I'm not a member. I think you can lead a totally ethical and spiritual life without it. Plenty of people do. It's not necessary. You know, it's like the quote from uh, Abraham Lincoln I really like. When I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. That makes sense to me. I think that's true. And, uh, you know, I like the golden rule. I like some stuff from religion. I like the language of the golden rule, the solidity of it. You know, it seems to be like a core tenet of every uh, reputable tradition. And it's got a lot of simplicity, a lot of power. It strikes me as kind of being Teflon. And then the other thing that makes sense to me that had, uh, you know, a profound impact on me is something called the Diamond Sutra in Buddhism, which basically says this is because that is. I am because you are. Which is to say we're all made of the same stuff. We're all interdependent ultimately. And we only think that we're separate. Separateness is an illusion. And the reason I like this is because I can see clear evidence of it in a way that kind of trips me out. You know, I'm one of those people, I I feel great comfort in thinking about the fact that human beings are made of 70% water. I am made of water. I'm a water person. And so are you. And better yet, the earth is made of 70% water too, more or less. We're all just water. And water is hydrogen and oxygen. Our bodies are made of hydrogen and oxygen. We're all the same. And the atmosphere, it contains hydrogen and oxygen. You break us down to the molecular and atomic and subatomic levels... And everything is essentially the same. Everything contains everything else. Everything is interdependent. You cut down the trees, we can't breathe. This is because that is. You look at an atom under a microscope and you measure the distance between electrons relative to their size. The distance between them is on par with the distance between stars. So I think that all, you know, I think I I do believe that the central delusion of humanity is the idea that we have separate selves, that we're like these individual entities and we don't depend on each other. It's like we're little pods or something, you know? And so here I am podcasting. I'm a pod and I'm podcasting, but without you, without the listener, it doesn't exist. We're interdependent. I can't have a podcast without listeners, without listeners... I'm just a pod. So that's a starting point anyway. That's my starting point. The uh, the Golden Rule, the Diamond Sutra, and, and that's sort of where I am. And uh, I'm wandering through my life, and those things combined so far are, are pretty much the North Star. But, you know, conversely, it seems like when you have a dogma, uh, and especially when you have a kind of a sky god, a god up in the sky or some sort of deity... It, to me, it's, it becomes a conversation ender. And that's, what's, that's what I think frustrates me. You know, it's like, I know what I believe. I've got my book and I've got my ultimate superhero and I know the way. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, how did you get there? The Bible. Well, have you read the Bible? And I, and I mean, cover to cover. Have you really read it? You're basing your entire life on it. The Bible, and I could be wrong, but the Bible strikes me, it's like infinite jest. Everybody has it, but few people have actually read it. You know, we need to be able to discuss this stuff, discuss evidence, discuss bullshit, just discuss in general, because I think that the only way that we ultimately will survive as a species is if we're we're willing to have beliefs, uh, our beliefs and behaviors changed, you know, through discussion, through conversation and honest investigation. 
We have to be flexible in that way. Otherwise, we're just rigid and we're entrenched in our beliefs and we're shouting at each other, thinking that we're entirely separate entities, thinking that you know, our interests are uh, independent of one another. We got two different sky gods. One's a Christian and one's a Mormon. Or one's a Muslim and one's a Jew. And things are getting heated. It's my God versus your God. It's my ultimate hero versus your ultimate hero. It's my conversation ender versus your conversation ender. And when people start acting in the name of a deity, it can get into a situation where anything that you say or do in its defense seems justifiable. At least that's how I see it. That's how I see it from the outside looking in. And so then where does it end ultimately? You've got two groups shouting, you know, shouting each other down. You've got two people standing toe to toe shouting at each other. Things get ugly. A punch is thrown. And uh, I guess what I'm saying is that if this is because that is, and if everything really is connected and there's really no separate self, then when people freak out like that and they punch one another in the face, they're basically standing in front of a mirror punching themselves. And that's not good. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So let me ask you, this is an interesting point. This is a show where I talk to writers. This is a show about books, essentially. And this is a book about a very controversial and contemporary religion that was founded by an author. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard yeah. was first a science fiction writer. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk a bit more about him because without him, there is no Scientology. He's the beginning of this thing. And w tell me about his origins. How did he come to this? Well, L. Ron Hubbard was a uh, kind of a genius, um, but a a guy who, who had these really... Um, uh, you know, dreams of greatness and, and sort of delusions of grandeur, actually. And everything he tried in his life um, was not as big of a success as he wanted it to be. Like, he was in the war, but he was in World War II, but he was not a war hero. And but he always wanted to be... Didn't he, like, position himself? He or? tried to be, <laughs> but he failed. Yeah, he was kind of a... He was, he was not a good... He was not a good, uh, a good officer. Um, but wasn't that like written into his bio after the fact? Didn't he try to portray himself? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. After the fact, he created an entire bio. This is after he created Scientology, though. Oh, okay. Um, this is later. 
Although even when when he was a young man, he was a science fiction writer. He's a pulp fiction writer initially, and he created a mythology about himself. Even then, where he was always a tall, he was a teller of tall tales. He was incredibly charismatic, a wonderful storyteller, a very engaging storyteller, who could kind of make you believe anything. He was like that guy that you know can sell ice cream to an Eskimo. You know that that old adage. That was him, and he, um, uh, you know, really wanted to be somebody. And I think he actually wanted to be, to in certain ways, re, you know, live up to some of the, the the fantasies he was spinning for others as truth. And um, so he, after the war, he had been a, a you know relatively successful science fiction writer, not a super successful one. I mean, he was you know he was within the, a respected group, but he was not um, you know on the level of an Isaac Asimov or a Robert Heinlein or any of those really famous. Uh, writers from the 40s. and But he was very interested in um, the workings of the human mind and, and psychological control. And he came back from the war and began to work on a, uh, basically like a, a, a system of, um, of self-help. I think it was actually a way to heal himself of some of his own psychological problems because he was suffering for, from whether it was a trauma from the war itself or whether it was something else, he had some problems, and he was, I think, trying to heal himself of some of his own psychosis. Um, but he came up with um, a, a what he called a science of the mind called Dianetics, and he uh, wrote it up in a first in a, in a magazine article for Astounding Science Fiction, which was the magazine that he wrote for at the time, and um, and then he turned it into a book, and that came out in 1950, and. What Dianetics was was essentially, um, it was pop psychology. It was it was psychoanalysis for the masses. It was called the poor, the poor man psychoanalysis by a number of um, news magazines at the time, um, and it was talk therapy, a kind of you know regressive. It was it was somewhat based on the Freudian, a, a discarded Freudian um, theory of regressive therapy, where you go back and back to your earliest you know memories to root out these original traumas that are causing you so many problems in your current life. And Dianetics was a, um, a runaway bestseller in 1950. It became a huge fad. It was like a party game. People were sort of doing it on one another. It was also a really cool way, apparently, to pick up chicks. I, really? Yeah, I heard, I, heard from some, I heard from a guy that I interviewed that, like, in the, in the 50s, here in, in L.A., like in Malibu, um, people would go to parties and, and, you know, they didn't know how to, t- you know, this is the 50s, like men and women had, their re- their relations were so different, you know, they didn't have the, the language to talk to each other in the same way that we do, they didn't flirt with each other in the same way that we do today. They were like socially awkward. And this was a way to break the ice. And so, and to find out things about one another, it was like an encounter group. It's, it was fascinating. So wait, they were like, that you would be auditing each you other? You would be auditing each other. You'd go to, a, you'd have the book and you'd, You'd go, you know, you'd follow Hubbard's, you know, instructions to do, you know, this or that, ask this or that question and find, you know, and that this is what they, it was like a, a little script and they would, they would use this book to audit one another and then they'd find out about each other and then they'd go off and mess around. So uh, <laughs> heavy petting. And heavy, pe- heavy petting. So um, now this is interesting though, because like uh, when you think about the conception of it and, he, you know, I like the idea or I'm fascinated by the uh, the idea that he was trying to address his own ills. Yeah, yeah. But I'm also, I'm wondering if you arrived at any conclusions about his deepest motivations. I mean, somebody starts a religion or somebody starts a new science of the mind intended to alleviate, um, 
you know, uh, human mental illness or whatever you want to call it. Right. Uh, was he driven primarily by uh, a desire to help people? Was he driven by uh, primarily by a desire to make money? Was he driven by a desire for fame and notoriety? Like, do you have a sense of him, like, and what he was feeling when he was doing this? I think he was driven by all three of those things. I think he was certainly driven by a desire for um, fame and notoriety and definitely making money. Um, and I think that making money for him was not because he was necessarily greedy, but because it was a sign of success for that. You know, a guy in the 50s was judged by how much money he brought in. That was like the white, you know, this is like the the epitome of like you know the, the white middle aged man in 1955 or whatever was like well and he didn't come earner. from money either he didn't come from money his father was a naval officer I mean he wasn't a poor boy by any stretch but he was you know middle class and and he was a son of a naval officer moved around a lot and he um, but you know he judged men judge judge themselves against I mean they continue to about against how much money they make. So bringing, making a lot of money was important to him for that reason, and certainly fame and notoriety was very important to him. But I also think that, you know, helping people was important to him. Ultimately, he felt, whether it was from some narcissistic, you know, drive or, or from something more, you know, altruistic, that it was really important to help mankind and that he was helping mankind. He truly believed it. I, he did not believe that. I don't in any regard think that Aaron Hubbard thought of himself as like a big scam artist and he was just pulling the greatest con of all time on people. I don't, I just, you know, I mean, he may have had moments of that, but I think that in reality, most of him was really driven in a more sincere way because he couldn't have continued to do what he did for all those years. He wrote endless, endless policies and endless, endless um, volumes of information and, and advices and he wasn't outsourcing and, this stuff. no 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 oh gosh no I mean, he took resp- I mean even at times when he did outsource in his earlier in the earlier days of Scientology he did he was it was a much more collaborative effort but he ultimately took credit for the whole thing um, alienating a lot of people that worked with him so yeah I mean I, I think he was he was a very complicated character I think he was bipolar I mean some there are a lot of people that um, believe he was had a psychiatric issue, like a you know a real one. Um, well, that would explain the prolific the prolific writing, mm-hmm. the bursts of like mania where he's just like producing. Or he could just be a typical writer because we all know those bursts. Of, <laughs> maybe we're all bipolar. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I I was like I totally related to like the the crazed midnight two in the morning writing jags and like calling somebody up being like aha you know, <laughs> I wrote the perfect graph. You know? <laughs> Oh my God! I figured it out. Um, but yeah, I, he. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, he, I think he was a he was a much more complicated guy than people give him credit for. Um, and he was a genuine American sort of genius huckster, almost like a Henry Ford of this. I mean, he was. I mean, truly, he was. Look, he was. He came up with this self help program that he continued to sell, uh, despite being attacked routinely and over and over and over again um, and rebranding it consistently over the generations, over the decades, and it still exists today. And that the fact that people are still fascinated with this stuff now is a testament to L. Ron Hubbard's creativity and, and his um, ingenuity, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's like you say it's you know you've said uh, a couple of times now how doctrinaire it is, and and there's a lot of rigidity to Scientology, but uh, they have reinvent the religion has reinvented itself 
several times throughout its history in uh, responding to circumstances on the ground or whatever you want to call it. Exactly. I mean, actually, you know, even just to, um, you know, to get back to the question you asked before about celebrities, you know, David Miscavige, when he took over the church, um, in addition to uh, coddling the celebrities, he also had rebranded the church as a, a legitimate organization even before it got its its uh, tax exempt status. It was he was on a crusade for that legitimacy, and he he basically cleaned house of anyone in the organization that had any kind of ta- you know taint, uh, criminal taint, or and also a lot of people who were close to Alron Hubbard, and that was both. You know, an, it was a very negative thing ultimately for the church because he got rid of their the entire sort of intellectual history of the church. But he also um, made it appear as if it was now a legit organization that it was doing legit social work, that it was doing a lot of you know stuff in the community, that it was a real church, that it was a real religion. And the celebrities then you know stepped forth and began to defend it as a religion, and they felt more comfortable doing so. Whereas in the in the seventies, it was seen as too fringy, too culty. It was not something that. And, and those were the years that with. those were the years that Hubbard was on his boat in the Mediterranean. Yeah, it was. This, Hubbard was on his boat in the Mediterranean from sixty six to seventy. I'm thinking it was seventy six. Yeah, seventy five, seventy six, ten years, and he came. They came back to to they they moved back on land in the mid seventies to Clearwater, Florida, and then Hubbard took off and went into essentially a kind of hiding um, in the desert out in La Quinta, which is near Palm Springs. And but I mean, wasn't, was the law after him for like tax evasion mm-hmm, or anything? Mm-hmm. They were after him for, they were always looking for him. They, they would refuse to pay taxes. They lost their tax exempt status in the 60s and then they refused to pay taxes way, forever um, until they finally proved that they were a legit religion in 93. So, yeah, there was always an investigation of them going on in some way. And then, um, you know, the FBI was always looking into them for various things. There were, there were, you know, there were investigations of Hubbard overseas. There was a lot of... Well, he uh, wanted, I mean, he wanted... He was very notorious. He wanted a country, basically. Yeah, at one point he wanted his own country. He went to Rhodesia, which is Zimbabwe, which was then Rhodesia, um, thinking that he could befriend the the, uh, the right-wing... Rhodesian government and establish a permanent homeland for the Church of Scientology in Rhodesia. And they found out about it and said goodbye. <laughs> it was really funny. I was like... That's that was, ambitious. That was very ambitious. And I just thought that was actually... Having been to Zimbabwe, <laughs> um, that's very funny. So now, in, I remember reading something, and I can't quite remember what it was, but it was an account of those years on the the ship, which was called... Was it What was it called? Free winds, or I forget the what Apollo. Oh, the Apollo, Apollo. was that was his ship back yeah. in the seventies. And free winds is today. They have a ship called the Free Winds now. Okay, okay. So I'm confused. But back then, yeah, there's always a ship in there. But yeah. he was surrounded. I mean, he had this crew which lived in steerage, which was you know the conditions of which were like not ideal. This was like this ship had like a steel hull and it was hot. Yeah. And then he, he he had these young girls who tended to him. Mm-hmm. Is this true? That's true. So and they were they just got him his cigarettes mm-hmm. and they, they followed him around with like with their they had they had little girls they were little girls they were thirteen years old fourteen fifteen years old wearing um, initially wearing like little naval uniforms but then later they got to design their own outfits and they wore hot pants and like platform shoes and little midriffs like little cute little white shirts that tied at the, <laughs> at the 
<laughs> the tie to the belly button. I mean, there was like Jesus. like little Marsha Brady's. That's who they were. They all right. look like little Marsha Brady's. I've seen pictures. I've right? seen pictures of With him long, surrounded. Long straight hair. Yeah, yeah, but it's creepy. I mean, it's really weird. Yeah, and they. I mean, I, I've interviewed a lot of these women. They're grown up women today, but you know, they were. Um, yeah, they were trained to follow him around and parrot his uh, beyond like holding his ashtray or, you know, carrying his cigarettes or sort of, you know, being his pack, you know, mules wherever he went, you know, sort of his his Sherpas. Um, as he walked around the deck, they were also, they were called the Commodore's Messengers, and they were trained to, um, to, to serve as his mouthpiece while he was in his stateroom doing his writing or just basically hiding from everyone. They would, he would say, go out, you know, messenger, you know, go out and find out, blah, 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 or tell so-and-so that they are... You know, in contempt or something. Is that your L. Ron Hubbard yeah, impression? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. It's like great L. Ron Hubbard impression. <laughs> and they would go and they would shout. They would use his direct tone of voice. So he would say, "Go and you know." Um, he he at one point directed his messengers later on in the eighties to spit on people he didn't like. I mean, and they would do it. <laughs> you know? He would, this is they were trained to do to basically you know be his emissaries in every regard. So adults began to live in fear of these kids. They, they were like the Lord of the Flies kids. This is how they were described to me by a number of people. They, they were really, they started out as these sweet kids who were the children of um, very dedicated members who worked with Hubbard. And they evolved into this cadre of, you know, of little tyrants, actually. And that is, David Miscavige was one of them. He, he joined the messengers later on and once the, they were back on land. Um, and he was, you know, part of that unit and well, ultimately became the head of the church. Well, that's what I was, that's a great place to jump into that. Cause I wanted to ask you about, uh, comparing the two. There's been two leaders essentially of the right. church and it's, right. it was Hubbard and then it was Miscavige and Miscavige was raised in the church. Yes, he was raised and, in the church. I always see him in these, in these events, you know, and, and I think he looks like one of these prosperity, like a, like a Joel Osteen type, like a young, you know, sort of prosperity preacher type who's like, you know, everything's great and here's this amazing show we've put on for you and it's all like very Hollywood and, you know, he's always really tan, he's wearing a really great suit and, um, but he's not like, he's not like folksy or, or sort of, you know, like Jimmy Swaggartish or, 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 you know, he's very slick, incredibly slick. Right. Um, you know, uh, and he has this kind of charisma that's, hard to really put your finger on, but, um, but Miscavige is, is, yeah, I mean, Hubbard was kind of, if you, if you, I always look at it in terms of the Mormons in a way, because it's the other sort of big homegrown American faith. And, you know, um, Joseph Smith was the guru and the, the spiritual, and people thought Joseph Smith was a, was a charlatan and they, you know, accused him of a lot of stuff. And, um, Brigham Young was his, you know, inheritor who really took the church and took it and moved it into the next level. And so he was more, he was Mormonism's type. David Miscavige. Yeah. So David Miscavige is basically the Brigham Young of this church of Scientology. He's a, um, an, a brilliant tactician, um, very shrewd person. Um, you know, not a, um, a spiritual guy, not a personable person, not a, not a, not a, a not warm you know, and fuzzy, not a warm and fuzzy guy at all. Doesn't have that folks equality that Hubbard has. Doesn't have that, you know, Hubbard was a guy that people really like women fell in love with him. He had this incredible charisma. Like he women, wasn't a great looking guy. He wasn't guy. a great looking guy, but women just fell in love with him. He was incredibly attractive to both men and women. Like they just were riveted by the guy. 
And they looked at him as a guru. You know, David Miscavige is no one's guru, I think that we can safely say. But he's, um, he's a very um, inspiring leader to people just because of the goals that he's set that he has accomplished most, you know, most specifically of which is tax exemption, which was huge. And that was a long time goal. It was a long war that they fought against the IRS and they won it. And that was a legitimate success. And they've, that's his legitimized Scientology. But I mean, I think he's failed in many other regards and certainly, how so? um, well, I mean, I think that he, um, he was not a very good manager. I mean, he's very good at the promotional stuff. He's good at um, pitching, and he's you know he's he understands the power of the image very very well, but he's not good at um, at actually the nuts and bolts of leading an organization, of managing people. Of he's a control freak, for example, from what you know what I have learned. He's a um, uh, a guy who does not necessarily have a great hold on the. Um, the technical things that you need to understand in order to do Scientology. I mean, Hubbard was a came up with all of this stuff, um, and and he had a whole bunch of people around him who helped him create a lot of this and worked on these, you know, new what they call processes, these new theories and new techniques. And Miscavige is not of that brain. I mean, he only he only had a uh, he gra- dropped out of high school when he was like in the tenth grade. Uh, or eleventh grade or something. He's, he's really street he's smart. Really, he's a really street smart, but he's not street smart. He's also very isolated. I mean, he's yeah. street smart in a weird way. I'm well, just the fact that he was so young and advanced so quickly. Yeah, he's shrewd, and he's ambitious, but he doesn't understand very much about the world. Did you ever talk to him? No, he doesn't do interviews. Where, where does he live? Where does this guy? He, he never does it. He never he does press. He hasn't done an interview since '98. I put in numerous requests, and actually, what's one of the things that Church of Scientology is. Maintains that I didn't ever ask. I never asked. And it's like no, I asked many times. Well, uh, so where's he at? He's in Los Angeles a lot, and he's also in Florida a lot. And he goes, but his main home at the moment is it is in Hemet, which is this um, area in the San Jacinto Mountain region. It's it's um, this resort actually where they have their international base in um, Gilman Hot Springs. Did you get to go there? Yeah, you I got did. a tour. Yeah, is it nice? Was, well, it, part of it looks like Disneyland has like a fake Disneyland effect. There's like a, there's like a, a move. They make their movies there, right. and they have like this movie studio that's in a, in a ca- right near something they call the castle that looks like a kind of Disneyland castle. And there's a lot of elements to the place that have um, that has this sort of theme parkish um, motif. You know, whether they, they have a ship, for example, that is um, it looks like a Pirates of um, of the Caribbean ship. You know, I mean, I'd like Johnny Depp to be on there, you know, with like fake crabs. They would love for Johnny Depp to be on oh, there. Oh, <laughs> wouldn't they? Wouldn't they? Be I the know. Biggest coup Johnny ever. Depp would be, oh, God, that would be the biggest coup ever. Um, yeah, it's like this, and it's basically, um, you know, a little loungy snack bar, um, restroom, changing room area for the pool that the executives use. But it's this, like, they have a little dining room and you could have dinner. I think Cruz. It's tacky. It's really tacky, but Cruz and Miscavige had their first official meeting there. They had a dinner. And they're like BFF. Or they were supposed to have a dinner there. They actually had a lunch there later on. But yeah, they're BFF. They, and they hang. They're, 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 yeah. They he was like the best little... man at Tom and Kate, uh, yeah. Katie's wedding. Yeah. I don't know. To, I, I'm assuming they're still as close as they used to be. I just don't know because Cruz has stepped back so much from being that public spokesperson having. Why? Well, now, yeah, talk about him. Did You never you never spoke with him. You, you didn't have access no, to Tom Cruise. No. 
But, no. you know, the the stepping back, did you get any intel on why? I mean, other than the fact that it was damaging his movie career. I think that was the primary reason. I and think he stepped back. he fired back. his sister, or he didn't fire he his fired sister. Her, well, his publicist. He fired his sister from being his publicist. Yeah. His publicist. That's what yeah. we were calling him in Los Angeles. <laughs> it's actually, yeah. it's actually kind of great. Um, yeah. Yeah, he quickly, I mean, his career took such a hit. You know, these people are not, you know, totally stupid. I mean, and, you know, Tom Cruise at the time was the biggest movie star, you know, in the world on the way down, but nonetheless. Well, sure, yeah. You know, and then he went boom, right? And I mean, there, and he just, you know, couldn't, I mean, he just couldn't rebound. I mean, I thought, look what, the best thing he did for his career after that was, um, was Tropic Thunder. Remember he, when he played yeah, that? Yeah, I'd love him in like that. was like the revival. To me, I was like, ah. Oh. I he have was to say, redeeming himself. That's yeah. the only thing I'd seen him in. Like a he was long funny. Time. He was great. He was great, yeah. you know. But um, and he had a sense of humor. I was like, what happened to Tom? Like maybe he's actually something's going on with him where he's regaining humor. But um, yeah, he was he because he was so earnest for so long, and it was just this um, this very uh, damaging era for him. I think professionally and and that's what and did that's it. That's what did it. And I, then he hired an actual like professional was, publicity team. It, yeah, he hired and they. I think they put the kibosh on it. And then, <laughs> you know, but also I think for Scientology, if you notice, all the other celebrities stepped back too. And I think it was partially because they saw what happened to Cruz, but they also recognized that, um, and the church probably recognized that ultimately this was not a good thing for them. Uh, you know uh, that said, within the church. They thought what Cruz was doing was the greatest thing in the world. Oh, yeah. They were, like, high-fiving. They were high-fiving. So, I mean, for I think that it took a, a while for them to really under, get that, you know what? This is actually kind of damaging. Um, they didn't understand, I think, initially. They thought it was wonderful. And, you know, they're, they're, they thought, you know, because they also all think that Tom Cruise is, like, you know the greatest Scientologist. Well, and then what do they and, think of? What do they think of Suri? Is she supposed to be like the chosen one? That's I mean, that's like the popular. Oh, I don't know. You know, you know but there's nothing official like that. No, people didn't no. say anything. No, they're, they're not promoting that narrative within the church. No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. Good. Definitely not. No, no. It just seems that way. I mean, it just it seems that way on a glossy level. Well, I have, we cover it that way because yeah. the media covers it that way. But the little girl alone. Exactly. I mean, you know. I'm glad. I could, I, I, I could see. I mean, but it's like that level of exploitation. Like I've read things where, you know, uh, if you as a Scientology, if you're in Scientology and your family is uh, a Scientology family, and you decide I, I don't want any part of this, like there are stories where like families get ripped apart. That happens all the time. That's a major. That's a major story. You yeah, know? that's, that's major, terrible. That is the, one of the key storylines in Scientology, as a matter of fact, is that families get ripped apart. I mean, if you, if you blow, if you decide you want nothing to do with mm-hmm. it, and then your family, that they're still into it, the, the church encourages the remaining family members to cut off communication? Yeah, it's more than encouraging. It's really a, it's a policy. You have to disconnect, what they call disconnect, from that family member that blew. And um, if you don't, you will be endangering your own spiritual salvation. You you will be viewed as potentially as what they call a potential trouble source. Um, that person who blew, especially if they left under negative terms or is in any way speaking out about it or is in any way problematic, they're now suppre- deemed suppressive. An SP. An SP, a suppressive person. Are you an SP now I'm that you've sure. written this book? Oh yeah, I'm sure I'm an SP. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there's all in that, like, I'm, but you know, like, am I signed to, I have a Scientology friend, Natalie Wallat, who's, who's uh, in my book and, um, who's been like my 
Scientology, um, you know, she's she's been like my one like really great Scientology source and, you know, kind of buddy um, for years. I mean, since I met her when she was a teenager, she's now in law school. And, you know, she talks to me all the time. She loves my book. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's an interesting yeah. point because there's... She's unique. <laughs> is she unique? Cause oh, like, yeah. I was oh, going to yeah. say, is it possible? Because, like, it, within any religion, there are so, there's such variety. There's such variety of... Um, uh, there, there's so many different levels of adherence. Mm-hmm. So, like, there are casual, like, cafeteria Catholics. There are people who just, like, yeah, I'm Catholic, but I never go to church. There are some who go to church but don't really believe much, but like the community and the donuts afterwards. Right. I mean, there are right. there are different levels of this right. stuff. Like, is it possible to have that sort of relationship with the Church of Scientology, or do they generally require more of their members? Well, they demand more. They're very demanding. They really demand. And you have to pay. I mean, well, one thing, yes, you have to pay, and to do anything to advance on the what they call the bridge to so you can't get to heaven unless you give them thousands of dollars yeah oh yeah definitely not definitely not yeah which is right away my alarm i mean i don't there is no heaven in scientology well but you know what i mean i know you can't get clear you can't get clear (laughs) and get to ot7 right without totally enlightened self-actualized being unless you've donated many more than just thousands you know talking hundreds of thousands early to get really high up there because in addition to paying for each of these things which can cost you know does cost like tens of thousands ultimately you have to donate to a lot a wide variety of causes you have to be a member of the international association of scientologists which is only a few thousand dollars a year or something where you buy a lifetime membership for a few thousand dollars so that's not a big after thing. you signed your billion year contract no, no the billion contract is only if you work for the church oh okay. the rest of the rest of the people don't do that but um but the um but the other things are like you know you are you are basically hit up for money in every possible way whenever you go to the church because there's always some drive you know they have an organization called able the Association for Better Living and, and Education, I believe. And that's, that in, um, encompasses their um, education agenda, their anti-drug agenda, um, a number of causes. And you can give money to Narconon, which is the drug rehab program, or to Criminon, the, you know, the prison rehab program, or to um, Applied Scholastics, which is what the, the educational curriculum that they have. So it's interesting that they have all these kind of like organizations that are tethered to the church, but which have these really kind of like uh, benign right. names, names that you would never know Absolutely. have any scientolo- you know, scientological. Applied Scholastics. Doesn't that remind you of like the Scholastic magazine you used to read in the dentist office? So are they using these organizations as a way to funnel money into the church, like yeah. to, to raise money from, oh, yeah. from secular people? Oh, yeah. It's a, these are secular, secular, quote unquote, uh, but not because they're tax exempt. <laughs> um, this is interesting. This is the tax exemption they have. It, it includes their, their so-called secular you know, organizations. These are, um, you know, all of these uh, groups, social betterment groups, um, are um, ways that this church makes money. Um, and, you know, the, 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 uh, they, the organizations themselves will make them whatever money they need to make, but they tithe, um, more than tithe, they pay, you know, a lot of money back to the church. They have to send money back to the church. They pay to license all the church materials. It's just it's a way that the church generates um, money for itself. And, uh, you know, not everybody who is involved with these organizations is a Scientologist, but most are. I mean, you know, it's not like, 
the Narconon clinics sometimes are run by people who are not Scientologists. And, you know, not every child who attends a, a school that, you know, uses applied scholastics material is a Scientologist, but most are. So, I mean, it's sort of kept within the community. Nonetheless, you know, they are aggressively trying to get into the public school system, for example, through, uh-huh. through a moral agenda program called the Way to Happiness. And they've, uh, you know, they, they distribute this material to after-school programs. They've tried to implement them in the actual public school, you know, curriculum. They, um, these are disseminated all over the world and into the secular world. And it's a way to, you know, to bring the Scientological, you know, worldview into secular society to ultimately change the view of secular society to bring it more in line with Scientology's view. I mean, could we say that that Christianity has done the same? Sure. Yeah. But Michelle Bachman's trying to do it in Minnesota. Yeah, you know, I mean, but this is, you know, dominionism is, you know, theocracy is what the Christian right is, is you know, this specifically um, a specific part of the evangelical right is very much focused on, you know, this idea of, you know, a, a, a world that is run all, uh, by what they call kingdom principles, you know, by Ugh. the principles of the Bible. Well, Scientology wants that same thing. They want a world that's run by the principles of L. Ron Hubbard. It's exactly the same. Right. And the Muslims want, and like the, and hard, the Muslims, it's all the it's, same. It's, it's like, yeah, it's Sharia. It's, you know, this whatever is, it is, it's religious law. And they would like to infiltrate. Uh, secular society, and that's what they are doing in various ways. And why, why are people so crazy? Do you know I why? Know, you know. <laughs> I mean, do you ever? Did you ever find yourself just being like people are nuts when you were writing this book, or were you? I mean, because like the, one of the things that was interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's oh, wow. a, yeah. yeah. I mean, you just it's. it's yeah. I guess that's maybe the core of it. But I mean, it's like I want to believe the best of people. I want. I obviously want freedom of religion. People should be able to go out and yeah. pursue whatever road they want to pursue. But like, um, one of the things that struck me in your book was how impressed you were with Scientology children, kids who were, yeah, you know, kids who were being educated in Scientology schools or who had yeah. been, you know, within the church community from birth, and you were kind of uniformly impressed with them as being like well-adjusted, friendly, yeah. kind children. Yeah, I really love, I loved the children. I love kids. I love these kids. And I actually saw one of them the other day. And she came to a book reading I did in San Francisco. And, um, you know, and I felt my heart broke for them. I just, I don't know. I, you know, I've covered kids for a while as, you know, at Rolling Stone, part of what I've done is to, you know, weave young people into the more serious stories that we do. And um, so I do a lot, I spend a lot of time with, with kids in their teens and 20s. And I love them, and I um, found these kids to be just so special in certain ways, and yet so un- undereducated and sort of so unhappy. They'd had such an unhappy growing up, and Ugh. it really broke my heart. You know, like a couple of girls that I was, um, you know, became uh, characters in the book, and that were very helpful when I was doing the magazine article. Were um, you know really had an awful time with their families because, you know, here's the thing. I mean. You know, and this is true of a, n- a number of these new religious movements, actually. But these things were, were, you know, specifically with Scientology. You know, Ellen Hubbard created what was basically a therapy group. This was a psychotherapy group, essentially, an alternative psychotherapy group. This was for adults. You know, this was not for some... He never thought about children, you know. And so this was about adults pursuing their own self-actualization. And 
when children are brought into that, you have to think, well, how do we deal with raising kids and how do we deal with creating this whole you know, world? And Hubbard didn't really think in that way. And the main motivation for the adults is still very self-focused. It's all about you. It's all about your advancement that when you, you have to clear yourself in order to then clear the planet. So it's a very selfish Clear the planet. Yeah. Save the world. I know, but that turn of phrase just, yeah. I know. So, you know, but you're saving yourself before saving the world, and it's a very selfish foundation. Well, that leaves your kids out in the cold. And I know some, look, I know some adults who have left the church who are wonderful people, incredibly helpful to me in writing my book, and, you know, just really, really great people who were horrible parents and really, you know, feel terrible about that but spent all their time pursuing Scientology and like you know neglected their kids or thought they were doing the best for their kids by raising their kids within this within Scientology putting them in a Scientology school you know you know they thought they were doing the right thing but in fact these schools gave the kids no supervision they gave the kids no real teaching um so it's strongly like individualistic and narcissistic oh absolutely yeah and so you know I know like I mean, one this one young woman I, I recently saw um, a couple of days ago was telling me, you know, she's grown up now, she's in her late 20s, but when she was, uh, her father died not that long ago, and her mother, who's very dedicated to the church, for one month, her mother became her mom again and needed her family and was extremely close to the family and was really, you know, she felt like she had her mom back. And then that quickly went away and the mom's focus again turned just to Scientology and that, you know, she needs to like work with other Scientologists. She needs to go out and recruit other people to become Scientologists. She may have to like help somebody, you know, it's all about the site, the church. Is it a cult? At the expense of her children. Do you think it's a cult? I mean, you know, I hate that word because I think it just marginalizes the whole thing. But um, I think it, in certain regards, you know, yes. I think in other regards, no. I mean, and I think it's really important to make that distinction that not everything about it is culty. You know, obviously there are certain aspects that are totally, um, you know, totalist, as you would call them, right? Ideologically totalist. And um, But there are people like my friend Natalie who are you know, dedicated to Scientology, and I don't in any way see her as in a cult. She has not, in, she has not embraced those aspects of it. And you can, it's not like being, you know, a twice a year, you know, like we call them, like, you know, a twice a year Jew, you, you, know, go, go to, you go to temple on the high holidays and that's it, you know, or something. It's not like that. You can't do that in Scientology. But, um, y- you know, there are some people that are independent-minded enough to take the good from it and keep it in their lives and do it, you know, read, uh, read and study it and whatever, and resist the rest of it, the really all-encompassing aspects of it. Well, and that, yeah, to but, be fair, there are people who use some of the tech or mm-hmm. some of the teachings of Scientology to great effect in their lives. Oh, very much they so. They get off of drugs or, you yeah. know, they, they end a, a yeah. serious addiction or they, yeah. they feel happier or whatever. Yeah. Like, that's true. That, it is true. It is true. And, you know, God bless them. I mean, you know, that's, I have no judgment on their, um, on, on whether, on the theology of this at all. And, and I know like there are many people that do, but that's just not my thing. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, interested in evaluating whether they are or not a religion or are or not valid theologically. I mean, if it works for you, it works for you. I mean, that's actually one of their, one of their basic teachings is if it's true for you, it's true for you, right? What's true for you is true. Well, that actually, in theory, is, practical is right should be good that's very idealistic 
And it's very altruistic, actually. And it doesn't always work that way, though, because ultimately what happens when you get too into Scientology is what's true for the church is true. It doesn't have anything to do with whether it's true for you. It has to be it's what's true for them is true. And you're in line with it or you're not. Um, and that's, the, that's where it becomes culty. So if you, can, if you can stay on the outside of that onion layer and just use it in your life in a good way, like Kelly Preston, you know, for example, has said that Scientology helped her get over the death of her son. Yeah. And I absolutely believe it did. Scientology also contributed in a certain way, possibly to the death of her son, because she did not believe in um, putting him on any medications or getting him evaluated psychiatrically or, you know, that, you know his, his autism was not treated in, in a medical way. Um, there are people that really, you know, believe that that's, they're culpable. I don't take a stand on that one way or the other, but... You know, there is an argument to be made that many people do make that Scientology has, you know, could contribute to someone's death in that way. At the same time, it could help you personally get through something difficult in your life. And those are two, it's a really, those are two really good juxtapositions. It's a good, like, example of, of how Scientology can be really negative and also really positive, even within the same family. Well, yeah, and like that's, but the thing, and you know, really and that I start disturbing on, in that way. Well, yeah, in my own train of thought, it's like, okay, so there's good in it, and some of the stuff that people do or the practices that they adopt wind up being beneficial. But like, you know, you could look at some extreme Islamic group in the Middle East where similar things could be said. Yeah, you know, where it's like, sure. yeah, you know, they have these crazy beliefs and they think that um, everyone from the West needs to like go up in a big fireball. But you know, there's a uh, there's this one thing they do that helps this young guy and he feels better and right. he's nicer to his friends now or you know what, right. you know what I'm saying like right. Right. it's like right. you can you can there's always going to be that mixture in some in some way you know it's probably like you know in certain instances heavier on one side than the other but it's not cut and dry it's not black and white yeah no it's definitely not black and white and it's you know i think that um scientology is not a belief though it's a it's a practice in a way and it's like you know, so when you think of how it might help you get through a tr- you know something traumatic in your life, it's basically you're doing heavy therapy. And but they, and they and they but they don't like psychotherapy. No, but they have their own it, auditing is therapy. It's it's just yeah. it's by another name. So why, why does therapy. why do the Scientologists because they they have the industry of death psych, you know, psychiatry yeah. industry of death museum on Sunset right My or favorite museum in the whole world? I've, yeah, I still have yet to oh, go you in. Have to. I got to go in. Oh, you have to. So what's oh the deal? Oh, my God. It's, it's an, it's a, it's a, I don't even want to tell you about it. It's just, you have to experience it. Um, I literally died when I went to that museum. Um, uh, what's the, I'm sorry. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm now absorbed in my memories. Of this <laughs> yeah, just, I'm curious about the origins of Hubbard's disdain <laughs> for, for psychiatry. For psychiatry. Um, sorry about that. No, it's all right. Um, you know, he, he came up with Scientology. Well, he, when he came up with Dianetics, he offered it to the um, American Psychological Association. He, he tried to interest the psychological and psychiatric community in, in Scientology, and they were, like, not interested. As a legitimizing factor. Yeah. He was like, he wanted to help. He thought he, he thought he was going to offer great, you know, he's very narcissistic. He thought he was offering something great right. to the world, you know, I am an important man and I'm giving this to you, you know, and, and they were like, not interesting. <laughs> Pass. And uh, so um, then, you know, when he, he, this became a very popular thing, the psychiatric community actually took note and began to see it as dangerous. And they thought, they saw it as threatening <clears throat> because look, you know, 
people were doing their own therapy and not paying a lot of money for it. And there were very few psychiatrists in the United States anyway, but they charged a lot of money. And, you know, there was, I mean, there's all the thing about, you know, why this stuff really took off, I think, was because there were a lot of traumatized people in the, in the late 40s and the 50s because of World War II and the Cold War and the Korean War. And, you know, there wasn't any, any place for them to go. Um, you had a lot of, like, returning vets, for example, with PTSD who had nowhere to go because they didn't even recognize what they had. They were just kind of screwed up from the war. And there were no psychiatrists in lots of parts, you know, lots of the country. I mean, they were in certain pockets, certain cities. There were only, like, 600 of them in 1950 in the entire country, if you can imagine that. So it was not something that was widespread. We weren't in living in this therapy culture back then. And so for somebody to come up with an alternative to... You know, basically for somebody to come up with a cheap form of therapy that you could do yourself at home with your friends was like, I think for some people, a lifesaver. And psychiatrists recognized that and um, were very hostile to it. And they also, I think, saw that some of these techniques, which had been rejected by Freud ultimately and rejected by other early psychoanalysts, um, they saw those as dangerous. And so it wasn't that. purely just like financial motive. No, I think up. they saw, you know, Hubbard based some of his Dianetics theories on um, things that Freud and Breuer, Joseph Breuer and Jung, had experimented with earlier in their careers and had basically decided was not really useful and could even be, you know, you know harmful. I mean, it, they just didn't find it in any way useful. And psychiatrists, you know, understood that this was what they call abreaction therapy. It was this regressive therapy. Um, and it just was something they, they don't use, and they advised their um, members of their associations, like the psychiatrists within the professional associations, to not do this on their clients. And um, that was something that was devastating to Hubbard. And, you know, he looked at the psychiatric community um, as his enemy. And, I mean, they were investigated for practicing medicine without a license. I mean, they had a lot of problems because of their claims. And so they've been at war with the psychiatrists ever since. Uh, <laughs> and look at them <laughs> as the ancient. I mean, they are, to the Scientologists, the psychiatrists are like the Al-Qaeda of their, I mean, they are in their it's, world. They, they have a museum called are, the Psychiatry Industry of <coughs> Death Museum. <clears throat> yes. And like they say that without irony. And right here. In, yeah. And they say it like on a public street. Right. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I'm, you know, I have to say I take Scientology. Scientology takes itself incredibly seriously, and yeah. they should be taken seriously because they're a really powerful organization. They've been profoundly scary at various periods of their life. Um, how many people I, are I in Scientology? I for not being as scary today, but how many people? Yeah. I think a couple hundred thousand. That's how you get Because mm-hmm. they, they don't publicize numbers. I mean, it's not easy to arrive at an exact... Oh, yeah, they do. They say they have 8 to 11. I think they have 10. They claim 10 million or 11 million, but that's not... Well, they, that's what I meant. Like, they don't... The, there's a little bit of fog there. Yeah, they don't actually... They don't say, here it is. I mean, in every religion, by the way, does that. You know, sure. Everybody, but, you know, it's, it's... You know, they have a big presence in... Um, in LA, and they do in Florida, but they don't have a big presence in other parts of the country. Um, and I mean, they do, but not in a huge way. They're not, you know, there's a Scientology center in like a lot of cities and towns across the country, but how many members they have, I don't know. Certain churches have gone bankrupt. I know one in, I think, in Portland just recently went bankrupt. Um, and Clearwater is still going strong. Oh, I mean, yeah. That's like that's where the Sea Org is based, the right? The Sea Org is based. And, in, is, and tell, just say what the Sea Org is. The Sea Org is the management of the church. It's it's this navy, this private navy that Hubbard originally had on his ships, 
they turned into the church management and they run Scientology and they run it from, actually they run it from Hemet, they run it from here on Hollywood Boulevard. That big building on Hollywood and Ivar is called the Mother Church. It's the Mother the, Church. It's the, um, the blue one? No, that's the, that's. That's actually called the Pacific Area Command Base. Yeah. I mean, all these militaristic yeah. terms and like the Navy yeah, and the whole, yeah. they called, they had to call Hubbard the Commodore back in the day. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. Commodore. I mean, it's just yeah. absurd. I mean, it's the, no, the bank, it's the, um, it's called the Guarantee Bank building. It's a former bank, um, right on the corner of Hollywood and Ivar. And that is the mother church. That is the corporate, in certain ways, like the corporate headquarters. The big blue complex. This is a former Cedar of, Cedars of Lebanon hospital complex on on uh, Sunset. I guess it's Sunset. And Elron Hubbard Way. And He's L. Ron got his own Way. street yeah, in Los street. Angeles. I know, and that is the base of a number of their um, big, big advanced organizations. They have a number of. Um, it, it's a it's a very uh, key Scientology training center and church and then um in clearwater they have the biggest scientology um training center basically i mean it's there that is the, like they, the creme de la creme of all the auditors and the if you really want to advance and go the very you know get the very best counseling you go to clearwater or you go to the ship that they have called the free winds free winds and that's like the super secure cruise ship that cruises around the bahamas and so, and so, Clearwater. There's like thousands of Scientologists there. Yeah, hundreds. I mean, like, oh no, no, no. I think that they they basically kind of they run that town. They're probably. Oh yeah, they run. They definitely they have a tremendous amount of control downtown. Um, they are the largest real estate holder. They're also the largest private taxpayer um, because they do pay taxes on their non-religious property, and they have so much of it that they actually do pay a lot. Uh, uh, any single private property taxpayer. And it's called Clearwater, which mm-hmm. like has sort of like a play on words with the whole clear thing. I know, thing. but that's it, not why they that wasn't that, that, wasn't, that no. wasn't. It was just no. an accident. It was just a rundown little beach town, a retirement community that they thought would be easily taken over, and they did. And they did. And they did. And yeah, there are thousands and thousands of them down there. So what's uh, what's been the, in the Tampa Bay area? It's near Tampa, you know, in that whole area. There's a lot of them. So now, what uh, the the book comes out, or the book is out, mm-hmm. and. It's out. You uh, doing you're well. going around, yeah, going around doing uh, readings and interviews and whatnot. But what's been the the, the response from the church? And like, w- have you had any weird responses? Or I, I, I know mean, I know they wrote like a, an official church res- like rebuttal of your book, which they often do. They're eleven very, pages. Yeah, very litigious, and they're all you know they're they're they they, uh, they do this kind of thing when very somebody aggressive language. I wouldn't yeah. say it was litigious. No, no, no. I just language mean language was very aggressive and very hostile and whatever. And yeah. You know. Well, not the not the letter that they wrote in rebutting your book, but that in in its history the church has been very litigious. The, tr- the history of the church has been very litigious. Yeah. Um, I have at this point in time not um, felt that, and um, I'm not going to you know I'm not going to comment further on what you know, what is or is not going on legally or whatever, just because you can't comment on that stuff. But I mean, you know, uh, look, my book is on the shelf and my book is a, my book is a bestseller. Hey. Hey. Um, which is very exciting. And, um, that could have never happened in the past. I mean, there was never a book (laughs) about Scientology published in the United States that was even allowed to stay in print. Right. I mean, honestly, and it, you know, not, let alone how do they, how do they, how get do they, the uh, kinds of reviews or have an author do a book tour like this. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So what, so what prevented books in the past from staying in print? 
I think that, um, I mean, the church basically tried to shut down every author that was doing a book on the church, and or magazine writers as well, by the way. Um, I think that they could do it in the past because they were far more aggressive. They really, under L. Ron Hubbard, they were very, very aggressive. They, he hated bad press, hated it. And so does David Miscavige, but, um, you know, was just, uh, like, driven crazy with it. And um, hated being ridiculed, you know, all of that stuff. And I think that... Um, you know, I, I just, I don't know if it was the times. It was easier to intimidate people um, without the internet, without this immediate, you know. I mean, if they tried to, they took on, look, they took recently, for a good example of this, they took on Lawrence Wright, who wrote this great New Yorker piece, and he's actually now, I think he's working on his book. He's working on a book himself. They um, took him on nine months after his article comes out in the New Yorker, eight months after, and do this, they dedicate an issue of their own church magazine called Freedom to Lawrence Wright. Was this the one he did about uh, Paul Haggis? Yeah, Paul Haggis. Yeah. And uh, they do a video too, and they attack him, and they attack the fact checker, and who I know, and he feels so sorry, like her husband is a friend of mine who wrote me like, oh my God, what's going on? And I was like, you know, I mean, don't worry. I was like, don't worry. You know, it was interesting. I was like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, but they are... They did this whole thing where they're attacking, you know, Lawrence Wright and attacking the researchers at the New Yorker, and then um, that is, and and it, and it's that's it. I don't know whether they're suing or what. I don't think they are, but um, their great attack is this is this eight month later, you know, PR attack, which is like laughable, and it got covered immediately by everybody. It was immediate, like a, within a day, and I just thought, you know, and every and the consensus is, this is really crazy. Did you see this? Isn't this bizarre? Right. right? So, I think that like in the age in, of viral in videos, the age of viral videos, you know, you can't in the age of yeah. I mean, you just can't do it. And the, whereas in the past, I mean, they filed lawsuits against Time Magazine, and they you know took it way way up there, and they harassed reporters. Um, you know, greatly, according to those reporters who I know personally. Um, you know, so, I mean, it was just a very different era. And then I also think that they've recognized, to their credit, that doing real harassment or litigation is only going to make them look worse. Yeah. Unless you have actually libeled them. Sure. And nobody, I think, worth their salt would do that or should do that. You don't need to. That's... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The it's truth, all there. <laughs> yeah, the, it's there's a lot of yeah, yeah. The truth is honestly even more interesting than what you might make up. Um, honestly, it's yeah, it's all there, yeah. and um, it's really easy to to prove it actually. But um, in my in my experience, and I've, my book is like I spent a long time researching and making sure everything was extremely well noted, and we had it, we vetted it for a very long time and fact checked it and the whole thing, but. Um, and even there, still, there was like a couple typos and whatever things happen, but um, little errors that we'll correct. But I mean, the um, uh, just the general idea of making a big issue of suing as an intimidation technique is, I think, something that is now not as a, not as um, 
practical for them because it immediately becomes public knowledge and they immediately will feel, you know, the negative public reaction and they're trying to win members. They're trying to attract people and also their own members. You know, when they do this Freedom Magazine thing for, uh, you know, they attack, you know, a journalist in their own publications, that's for their own membership. So their own membership looks at, doesn't think that maybe I should read that New Yorker article that everybody read, you know? Right. It's not for us. It's for them, you know? You don't see them. And it, it, it's, you know, whereas, like, in the 90s, they would buy ad space in major newspapers to attack Time magazine, right? They're not doing... They didn't do that with the New Yorker. They just pr- published something for their own people. So, so a different strategy. I really think it's a different strategy. I think it's a smarter strategy. Yeah. I think it's a weak, weaker. It shows the weakness of the church, um, and but it also shows a level of maturity that you know what. Like I mean, they're gonna. If this is their strategy, it's a. I mean, it's. We might think it's absurd, but at least they've recognized that it doesn't really help them in the what they call the wog world to come <laughs> off as litigious monsters. You know, yeah. I mean, and actually, their people have said this to me directly that you know, if we sue, we look like litigious monsters. That's so, right. We're kind of damned if we do or damned if we don't, you know, and they have to pick and choose their battles. And I like have said this a number of times now, but I really applaud them for not going after people, going after reporters. Like yourself. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> not to say that they don't, you know, they worry every reporter. I mean, they when when I did the Rolling Stone piece, they called my editors and tried to discredit me. They, they did their whole thing. They did the whole, you know, went down the list of what they do. Yeah. It didn't work, you know. I'm not that intimidated, and nobody else was, and we certainly weren't at the magazine, and we just, you know, we do a really thorough job, and I didn't come in with an agenda, and that's the end of it, and I'm very comfortable with the reporting I did and my sources and the whole thing. But, like, I think that, you know, if... Uh, I think the Church of Scientology is kind of at a crossroads, and they've got to, like, change... And they've got to accept their history. I mean, this book is a story of the church from their founding to the present. And it tells the good and the bad, and it exposes a lot of the negatives. But it also puts it into a context where you understand why. I mean, just like we were saying before, like, aren't people crazy? Like, they are, people are crazy. But there's also reasons, like, for them to do the things that they do. I mean, I, I totally understand why and how certain people got into Scientology in the 60s. It sure. makes total sense to me. I completely understand how somebody If I was that it. high and somebody approached me... No, it's not even about being high. <laughs> it was about being... You know, no, seriously. I mean, I think if, if somebody approaches you and says, and you're a really idealistic kid, and you really think that you're going to, you know... Change the change world. Change the world. And you hate your parents, and you just you think that the, you think the society that we live in right now has gone crazy. Mm. And they're coming to you, and they're saying, we are anti the society. And we have an alternative. We have a solution. Look at these books. They seem smart. You know, the guy that wrote them seems smart. There's a great film of him talking, and he looks like the smartest man in the world, but he's also really cool, and he's a little bit like... People call him the Commodore. The Commodore. And he wears an ascot. Right. I mean, he was a little... There's like this sort of Peter Pan, like Pied Piper quality to him that was very frightening to parents. Yeah. But kids loved it, and I totally understand that. Sure. You know? And he wasn't... You know, it was also something that was scientific enough that some kids got their parents into it. There are a lot of families that all got into it together, that children got their families, parents into it. And that's very different than, say, you know, the Hare Krishnas. 
um, where, you know, kids or, or the Moonies where the kids just went off and the parents, you know, really worried about them. It was, this was something where whole families sometimes got into Scientology together hmm. and parents got their children and children got their parents. And, and, but I can understand how they get into it even, you know, even now. I mean, I think that like for as crazy as some of this seems, and we could say all religion is kind of crazy. I think everybody yearns to, everybody yearns for truth. Everybody yearns for the certainty. Everybody wants to know that they will be safe after they die, that death is not the end. Everybody. And Scientology see, I sort of yearn for, that. I sort of yearn for like just acceptance of uh, the certainty of uncertainty, I guess. I just like want everyone to just, I want everyone to just kind of like stop. I, this is my dream. Every human being on planet Earth, stop at once and just sort of look at each other and be like, I have no fucking idea what's going on. And just be cool with that. Like a giant shrug. Like just like a giant shrug. shrug. Not that we don't try. <laughs> yeah. Not that we don't try to understand. Not that we just give up, but just like quit pretending like you have the book or, you know, goodness gracious that that yeah, yeah, it's yeah, that's yeah, yeah. what you know that's me that's my stuff i could go on talking to you for like the next six hours because this is also fascinating <laughs> to me um I, I never even got into rolling stone how is it there quickly is it good yeah yeah I love rolling stone. does I mean, everybody just like smoke pod and like no, hang? no it's not no, like that we're a really corporate magazine and actually our desks have to be really neat um, although I don't work, none of the writers have, we don't, we don't actually technically work at the magazine. We have our own little offices elsewhere, but yeah, all my editors, their offices have to be really neat. It's, it, there's a, there's a neatness rule. And see, is it Yan? And it's Yan Winner? It's Yan. 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 So Yan, Yan he wants everyone's offices oh, neat. Oh yeah. He's a, he's a tough boss, but he's, 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 I mean, it's, look, you know, magazine publishing my two-second digression. Magazines are going through, journalism itself is going through a really difficult era. So books. Um, magazines are going through a really tough time. And, sure. Um, Rolling Stone is one of the few magazines left in this country that publishes serious investigative That's narrative right. nonfiction. And bravo. Yeah. And we have a wonderful... And we're very fortunate. We are edited. Actually, Jan Winner is the editor as well as the publisher and the owner of the magazine. And he gets involved in the process. He reads, you know, he's, he, he helped to edit the Scientology story that I wrote for the magazine. He just, you know, helped to edit uh, a story that I wrote in Haiti that recently ran in Rolling Stone. He's a very engaged editor. Um, he says yay or nay on lots of story ideas. And he, um, you know, also gives you the time and the money when you need it to go off and, and do what you need to do in a story he respects, you know, investigative reporting. And that's a very rare thing. And most, you know, at most magazines that have a more of a corporate ownership have had to cut back on that just because they have bean counters telling them to. And Jan, right. God bless him, is, you know, allows us to do that work. And so, and to have, do it with a voice. And um, so I, I really... I feel very, very, very blessed to have that opportunity because it's very rare these well, days. Well, I uh, I applaud you for this book. It's a fascinating read. I wish you continued success with it. Thank you so much. Thank this is really fun. All right. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. That's the program. That's Janet Reitman. If you want to find her on the web, she's at JanetReitman.com. Reitman is spelled R-E-I-T-M-A-N. You can also find her on Twitter. Her handle is at Janet Reitman. The book is called Inside Scientology. It is available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, wherever books are sold. And uh, it makes for a great stocking stuffer. 
So this program has a website, otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And uh, don't forget to check out thenervousbreakdown.com. And speaking of TNB, TNB is having a literary experience at Stories, Books, and Cafe in Echo Park in Los Angeles on December 1st. For more details, please check out The Nervous Breakdown on Facebook. So uh, just to wrap things up, Scientology, very fascinating stuff, very unusual. L. Ron Hubbard, uh, I just can't get over the fact that he was a writer first. He was an author of science fiction. He founded a religion. He wore an ascot. He chain-smoked. Uh, you see, he was kind of a pimp, actually. You know, people uh, people called him the Commodore, and uh, he, he cruised around in a yacht. Um, that's interesting to me. I do not have a yacht. Uh, I am not a pimp. I am confused, and I find, I think, comfort in articulating this confusion. I think that's my thing. Uh, I kind of just want to own that. I don't know why I'm here. Uh, that's okay with me, and I, I kind of figure maybe I'm not supposed to know. And I think I sometimes will further comfort myself by engaging in the kinds of conversations that tend to take place in, uh, you know, college dorm rooms late at night. Stuff like the earth is round. We're standing on a ball in space. We're made of 70% water. The planet is made of 70% water. The planet is named earth. Where is earth in the Milky way? What is the Milky way? It's a galaxy. Where is the galaxy? It's in space. Where is space? You know, we don't even know. That's kind of my point. I don't think we even know where we are. That, to me, is fundamentally weird. We're standing on a large ball, presently, or sitting on one. That, to me, is also very fundamentally weird. And uh, that's all I'm saying. So, it's a weird existence in a weird universe. And if ultimately aliens come to get us, if uh, if Xenu comes to get us, you know, hopefully they come with the news that they, too, are made of 70% water. I think that's what I'm saying. I just hope that the aliens are water people too. I hope they come with uh, with the news that everything is connected, which is to say I hope they come in peace, bearing wisdom, as opposed to showing up in a you know cinematic fashion, guns blazing with big teeth and skulls the size of watermelons and empty black eyes, ready to obliterate us and suck the planet dry of its remaining few precious natural resources. It's a weird existence. And I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I do know that I do not want to punch anyone. I know that, uh, you know, punching people is bad. You shouldn't punch anyone, uh, not even yourself. Do not punch yourself. Do not damage yourself. Do not damage your pod. So that's all I got. Clearly I'm rambling. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for making this a podcast. I'll be back soon with another weird conversation with another human being. Until then, uh, you know, be good to yourself. Uh, and please drink plenty of water.